All right, well, let's pray, and we will get started. We're in Luke uh, 12th chapter, verse 13 is where we start today. Uh, hope you saw the outline, perhaps made a copy of it or, or have it nearby. And you'll see the first heading is the life giver. <clears throat> so that's where we'll start after I pray. Father, thank you so much for the joy and the privilege of studying God's word with brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, thank you that in these uh, challenging days, technology allows us to uh, share together and to talk to one another and to at least see a little bit of one another. And we're very grateful for that. We look forward to the time when we can forsake Zoom and be back together in person. And so just to guide us in these days, keep us healthy. Uh, I I know I heard George say a minute ago he's in quarantine, so I, I just want to pray that uh, he will not uh, get ill, that he will be just fine, and any others, <clears throat> Father, who may be facing the same issue. So, Father, uh, guide us through the study of your word today. Speak to us from the Gospel of Luke. We are grateful, grateful participants in this time together, and pray that we'll sense the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the life giver, that will cover chapter 12, verse 13, through the ninth verse of chapter 13, and in this text, we'll see that uh, the Lord, or Jesus, looks at life, and so we're going to think about this question, how should we view it? That is, how should we view life? So in the first part of this text, carrying us from verses 13 through 34, we might ask ourselves a question, what is life? We'll find that there is a frequent use of the word life in this chapter on the part of our Lord. So let's set up the text by reading verses 13 and 14. That's kind of our setup for all that will follow. So if you look at chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, it said, it says, someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, teacher, I won't shout in your ear, but this person was shouting, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And that's the setup. So we'll just stop right there for for a moment. It's kind of a strange event. Uh, Understand that in those days, the eldest son would be the one who would inherit the estate of his parents of his father when his father died and it was totally dependent upon the goodwill of that oldest son as to whether he would share any of that with his any siblings that he might have now traditionally um, that would often happen or the family would just keep living together and the oldest son would become the new patriarch and so he would oversee the whole family and take care of everybody But it appears that this um, younger son is not satisfied with whatever arrangement there is at the moment. And so maybe uh, his older brother has decided not to include him or doesn't want him around. Or it may be like the prodigal son. He wants to take his share and go away somewhere. We, We don't know more details than simply what we read here, but it is strange that we're let in on this 
kind of uh, conversation, if you want to call it that. He's yelling out at Jesus. And what he's yelling out about is a family matter. And so likely his father has now died. And I would think it would be a time of mourning for him. But instead of talking with his own brother, he wants someone to tell his brother what to do. And that would be, at the very least, to split the estate. So wisely, Jesus chooses not to entangle himself in this uh, this affair, but instead takes it as an opportunity to address the issue of life itself. So I love the way Jesus transitions the thought and the conversation uh, to what he really wants to share with those who are listening, which would be a, a sizable group of people. Now, does your mind ever wonder what happened? My mind does that. I try not to spend too much time thinking about the frivolous or thinking about things that we'll never know an answer to, at least till we get to heaven. But I I have wondered whatever happened there, did that uh, between the younger son and the older son or the younger brother and the older brother, what, what really happened? Maybe, maybe a lesson to learn is uh, be nice to your older brother. If you have one, (laughs) it may pay off someday to be, to be nice to him. But anyway, we move on and let's see verses 15 through 21. Uh, And, and if you write this down verses 15 through 21, I've simply given it this title. Life is not stuff. S T U F F life is not stuff. How much stuff do you have? That's what it is. Your, your possessions. I, that's, we just call it stuff. And of course, to us, it's you probably pretty important stuff. And we would look at it and say necessary stuff. Now that might really be open to question, but we see it as important. So what Jesus wants to, wants us to realize in the text is life is not stuff. So let's see how he words it, verse 15. Then he said to them, that is the crowd, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, now here's where we begin to get his heart. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So there is definitely a message for us here. And I've entitled it, Life is Not Stuff. Greed is a sin. We know that. One of the seven deadly sins mentioned in Proverbs, based on Jesus' teaching, there is no sympathy here for this wealthy man. Jesus expresses no sympathy for him whatsoever. Therefore, 
we likely have no sympathy for him. He illustrates the thoughts and the actions of a foolish man who has all his thoughts, all his attention, all his energy, all his concern for his possessions. So Jesus here is not describing the so-called good life. If you define life by your possessions, then God calls you fool. Life is not defined by what you have. Now, it's pretty easy if you're not careful to let your life be defined by what you have or what you don't have. But Jesus would warn us about that. Don't do it. Your life is not your possessions. Your life is not your stuff. Your life is not what you have or what you don't have. So don't sit around pining for what you don't have and be careful with what you do have, but don't idolize it. Don't put it at the center of your life. So let me just say four things about that before before we move on. Um, not a whole lot of elaborations needed here, is it? But But here's what word of encouragement to us as believers. Number one, work hard at your calling. Work hard at your calling. Now, for many of us on the screen here today, our current calling is retirement. We've, we've worked. I'm, a, I'm soon to join the ranks of the retired, but I'm not going to join the ranks of the, of those who do nothing. I'm, I'm going to stay busy, stay involved in ministry, but whatever it is, whether you're still working for, um, salary or whether you are retired and serving in other ways, work hard at your calling. Secondly, be generous. Whatever you have, be generous with what you do have. Give generously to the Lord and be generous with others around you. Number three, be wise. Be wise with what God has entrusted to you. Don't be foolish, uh, but be wise. We're not idolizing our stuff when we try to be wise with what we do with our stuff. And so the basis of that wisdom is found in the Lord himself. So when opportunities come along for doing things with our stuff, it behooves us to ask God what he would have us to do. And so work hard at your calling, be generous, be wise, and lastly, Trust God and serve. Trust God and serve. So trust the Lord. Don't obsess over what you have, but trust God and serve him. And we know we serve him by serving others. So that's just a word of encouragement about your stuff. Now, in uh, verses 22, 23, and 24, I've given them a little title all life is more than food and clothes. Life is more than food and clothes. I've never had an issue uh, with uh, being obsessive about clothes. Uh, I'm, I'm not a clothes horse. Uh, I do have some nice clothes and I'm thankful for that, but I, I just don't, I don't spend a whole lot of time obsessing and I can go to the store with my wife, a department store, she goes because there's something she needs a new dress or whatever it is. And so she'll tell me to go look at the men's stuff while she looks at the ladies' stuff. And 15 minutes later, I'll come back with nothing in my hand. Um, often now once in a while, I'll see something and say, oh, I'm going to get that. But she'll say, didn't you find anything you wanted? And 
you know, I'd say, no, nah, uh, I don't need it. Don't. So that's never been a, however, when it comes to food, that's another story. Um, one of Sharon's greatest fears in life is allowing me to go to the grocery store and do the shopping. And uh, I do that quite often now. I, I sort of just say, I'm going to do it. And don't ask. I just go do it. But she knows that there's a good possibility I'm going to come back with things that we don't really need, uh, things that I don't need. <laughs> so I put a high priority on food. I, I really do. I love to eat. I, I love to eat with others. It's it's fun. So I need the reminder that life is not is more than food and clothes. Uh, what's the saying? You don't live to eat, you eat to live. And there are some people who kind of get that mixed up. And so Jesus says life is more than food and clothes. Food and clothes do not define life. Uh, and then, so he uses an illustration here from ravens. So let me, let me read. Here we go. 22. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. So reassuring verse. We are more valuable than the ravens or anyone in the animal world. So don't judge your life or your importance to God on the basis of your possessions. So Jesus is just giving us a gentle or maybe not so gentle reminder to have our stuff in the right perspective. There's nothing wrong with having a significant if you worked hard and, and you have you have it and you can. God does not condemn that unless we have allowed that stuff and the obtaining of that stuff to push God to the back row or to push our fellow man to the back row or to push serving and stewardship to the back. If And if that happens, there's a warning in these verses to us. So let's be careful that we keep God serving others, faithfulness, and our stuff in the right in the right perspective. And so some of you are listening and looking at the screen and that's not an issue for you. You have no problem with that, but there are others who that may really be a, that, and you know, it, that may really be an issue dealing with your stuff. So word to the wise is sufficient. What Jesus says to all of us. Now, uh, what do we tend to do? when we have things out of kilter, like we value our stuff too much, what do we tend to do? We tend to worry. So we get to verses 25 and uh, through 28, and Jesus reminds us that life is damaged by worry. So that's the little, life is damaged by worry. So let me read 25 through 28. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Well, the answer to that question is uh, nobody. 
In fact, if we understand the way the physical body acts, we understand that we may shorten our life by, by too much worry. So Jesus says, you can't, you're not going to add to your life by worrying. Since you cannot do, verse 26, since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. Now picture Texas blue bonnets in the spring. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? So um, he does not, is not intimating or hinting here that we, we are to be lazy, that we just wait for God to drop everything into our laps. Uh, no, we know as part of our stewardship and our responsibility that we should, we should work hard and, and we should serve God. But don't worry. Working hard and serving God are not compatible with worrying. And it will not lengthen your life nor solve your monetary issues if there are any by worry. So trust God. And he, if he says, if I'm going to take care of the wildflowers and I'm going to take care of the grass or the field, don't you think I'm going to take care of you? Oh, you of little faith. So once again, the reminder of keeping our stuff in the right perspective. Now we come to verse 29, 30 and 31. And I put a little title to those verses. Life is about seeking God and his kingdom. Life is about seeking God and his kingdom. So let's look at verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Now, he's giving us a picture here of the pagans, the lost people, living a life of worry. And where that is true, we certainly want to not be like that. So we come back, what does it do to your testimony when you live a life that is like a pagan who worries about all his stuff? Should not people be able to look at us and say, I wish I could have the perspective that Christian has on life and not worry so much about my stuff, things beyond my control. Life is about seeking God and his kingdom, and life is meant to be lived following God and his kingdom, not seeking stuff. So when you seek God and his kingdom, we have this promise, our greatest need is met. When we seek him and his kingdom, our greatest need is met. And what is our greatest need? Seeking God in his kingdom. But at the same time, he tells us God will meet our lesser needs too, as only he can do. He will meet our lesser needs too, as only he can do. Now, the last part of this section, uh, verses 32, 33, and 34, I have put this, these three words. Life follows treasure. Life 
follows treasure. Where's your treasure? What's your treasure? Whatever it is you treasure, you can be sure your life is following that treasure. So look at verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Ooh, all right. I like the sound of that. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So verse 32 is a reassuring verse. Do not be afraid. How many times did Jesus say, fear not? Many. Do not be afraid. Your father has given to you the kingdom of God. You are part of the kingdom of God. Think about that in all of of its eternal perspective and glory. Verse 33 is an encouragement to us to be generous, to be generous. Invest in treasure you cannot lose. And often we'll find that investing in treasure that we cannot lose is investing in the work of the kingdom of God investing in ways to bless the lives of others with the good news. And then 34 is the reminder, your treasure and your heart go together. Whatever it is you treasure, it's where your heart is. So if you treasure above all else your possessions, then that's where your heart is. If you treasure above all else Jesus Christ, then that's where your heart is. And it's a very simple statement, a true uh, equation, as it were. Treasure equals heart. Heart equals treasure. So let's uh, let's move on. I, I'm trying to go faster. I don't know how successful I'm being, but I'm cognizant of the day of the of how far we have to go by the last Wednesday in October. And so um, I want to clip along. I could say a little more detail about all of these, but I'm going to try to hit the big stuff. Okay. So verses 35 to 48 of chapter 12, I've entitled, How Should You Live Life? How Should You Live Life? And so the first part of the passage is verse 35 to 40. I've entitled, Be Ready Always. Be Ready Always. So let's see what Jesus said. Verse 35, Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Are you getting a picture in your mind? I hope so. We'll look at it in a minute. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. All right. Great verses. He's saying, among other things, be ready. Christ's return. Be ready for the Lord. Now he gives us a picture here that the master will serve as they recline at table. What, what event 
that will occur later in the gospel. Does that bring to mind? Lord's Supper, the washing of the disciples' feet, the serving of the disciples, that that's the picture that we get. But there's also that reminder, the master's coming back and, and be ready. Don't be asleep. Don't be, uh, daydreaming, but be ready when the master comes and we don't know when it'll be, but we know it could be any time. No one knows the hour, but let me, let me also, let me refer you to, you can jot this down and then I'll read it. Second Timothy four, eight, second Timothy four, eight. Now there is in store for me, Paul said, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have what longed for his appearing. We look forward to, we long for, we are prepared for the return of Christ. Now, um, my mother had some interesting truisms that she would throw at me when I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. One of which I've told you many times that her favorite Bible verse was, your sins will find you out. And they always did. Uh, but, well, I should say they almost always did. But um, another one of her favorite sayings was, when I did something I shouldn't have done, how would you have felt if Jesus had come back when you were doing that? Now, did your mother try that on you or your father? She wanted me to think about what I was doing and how I'd feel if Jesus' return was right at the moment where I was doing my my crime or whatever it is I was doing. How would you feel? Well, as a kid, I'm not sure that made a huge impression on me, but then maybe it did because I'm still remembering it at my age now, all these years later. I don't know that I ever used that on my kids, but I probably should have a couple of times. Now, if you keep going to verse 41 to 48, we see I I put a little title on that. Be busy about his work. Be busy about his work. So look at verse 41. Peter asked, you know, there's been a long section here where Jesus has done all the talking. And wouldn't you know that the one who speaks up and has something to say would be Peter. So verse 41, Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he's not aware of, and he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. 
From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Well, I don't think Peter expected the answer that he got when he asked Jesus uh, the question. Because Jesus just plows right on. But the implication is, Peter, you and the disciples need to listen to this message because I'm talking to you and to everyone else here who is my follower, who is who is following you. So, um, who is the faithful and wise manager? It's the one who is busy about what his master has told him to do. And bottom line in this text, there is a reward for the faithful and punishment for the unfaithful. Reward for the faithful and punishment for the unfaithful. That's what Jesus is driving home to the disciples. And the knowledge of God's will is a trust. You ever think of it that way? The knowledge of God's will is a trust, and we should take that seriously. So whatever it is God has told you and me to do, it's a trust that he's given to us, so we take it seriously and and we obey him. And that includes watching for his return, being faithful in awaiting the return of Christ. Be busy about his work. Now, we come to verse 49 as we move toward the end of the chapter. In fact, this carries over into chapter 13, verse 9. What do we face in life? What do we face in life? So I'm going to quickly just roll through these and show you some of the things that we face in life. Jesus is telling his disciples and us. Verses 49 to 53 He is saying, we will face distress. Here's how he words it. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, this is death, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Wow, wait a minute. What happened to the angels singing peace on earth, goodwill to men? Well, there's a lot that happens between the birth and the death and the resurrection of Christ and his coming again. And so he says, I've come to bring division. Now, let me ask you, do you see that? Do you see the division brought by Christ? You are either for him or you're against him. There's there's no middle ground. You're for him or you're against him. He's the way or he isn't the way. He's the truth or he isn't the truth. He's the life or he isn't the life. And he's come to bring division. And that division means there, not that you and I should fight each other, but the division is he's talking about is those who are for me, my followers, and those who aren't. From now on, verse 52, From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. My word, what's he talking about? Those who follow me and those who don't. 
Now, maybe if if the truth were known in your own family, your extended family, you you see that. We've got family members who follow Jesus and love him. We got family members who don't. Three against two or two against three or daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, and then whatever, illustrative of the fact that in Christ there there is there is division between those who follow and those who do not. And that's the, that is the, the reality of our existence and how we long and wish for peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the truth of the matter is we won't experience that until Jesus comes again. There's going to be division. There is now and there will always be. And my humble opinion, which is worth less than a cup of coffee, um, it's going to get a whole lot worse. And you may be thinking, it can't get worse than 2020. Oh, yes, it can. (laughs) And it's going to get a whole lot worse. Maybe ebbs and flows. Maybe the latter part of 2020 will be a little better than the first part of 2020, but roll into 2021, and here it comes again. And I don't even know what it is, except that we can know there's going to be division and strife until Jesus comes again. Okay, it behooves us to be ready, doesn't it? Now, Jesus said, what what are we going to face in life? We're going to face distress. And then in verses 54, 55, and 56, we're going to face hypocrisy. Well, lo and behold, we see that all the time. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And it is. Texans, 90% of the time in the summer, from which direction does the wind blow? The hot wind comes from the south. And it keeps us hot. Well, enough weatherman stuff. Verse 56, look at that. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Who are the, who are the hypocrites that he's constantly assaulting with, with his, with his words because they assault him with theirs? The Pharisees, religious leaders, they're there, they're listening. And so Jesus says, here's what we're going to face, distress and hypocrisy. Distress and hypocrisy. And in verses 57 to 59, he says, we're going to face strife. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Are you going with, as you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge may turn you over to the officer, and the officer may throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. He is talking about strife. Again, and, and, and division. And when it comes to division among believers, does Jesus say, oh, that's okay? No, he doesn't say that's okay. He wants us to be in unity with one another. And I point you to, I won't take time to read it because we're trying to roll. Jot down 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 7, where Paul addresses the division between believers and he condemns one believer taking another believer to court and placing their issues before a pagan judge 
and asking a pagan judge to make a judgment between the grievances one Christian has toward another Christian. And Paul says that ought not be. And what Paul said to the believers of that day is true today. That ought not be. So we're going to face strife. And then two more, verses thir- chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we're going to face disaster. And then in verses 6 through 9, we're going to face fruitlessness. So let's, let's read verses 1 through 5. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So there was slaughter on the part of Pilate of some of the Jews. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish, will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Here's the thinking of mainline Judaism in that day. If you suffer, you must be a bad person. If God's blessing is so obviously upon you, you must be a good person. Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. Don't look at the people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell as bad people. What happened was life. Do do we understand that? Sometimes we suffer and we say, God, did I do something wrong? And we need to examine that because sometimes the answer may be yes. When sin brings suffering, our sin brings suffering upon us. Um, For instance, if if I drink like a fish and I get cirrhosis of the liver, then I have brought my own suffering upon myself. If I smoke like a smokestack and I get lung cancer, I brought that on, on myself. I brought my own suffering on myself. That happened. However, most of the time, the suffering that we experience in this life is just we're part of the human race and we're not exempt from everything that happens. It's why Christians, we lose, Christians sometimes die young. We, we, we lose loved ones. We lose friends who are way too young to die from our perspective. We suffer illness. We suffer financial loss. We suffer things that pagans suffer because we're part of the human race and we're not promised exemption. And so, Jesus uses that, but then says, listen to me, repent of your sins, lest you perish yourself. So it's a stern warning of, uh, of repentance for those who are listening. Now, the last part, and then we'll move on to the, to, to the next section. Verse six. Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. And that, that's it. No, we don't know what happened the next year. 
but but here exemplifies something we need to remember there there is a judgment coming and the lord is patient that we we see the call for patience here let one more chance one more chance one more chance i'll dig around and fertilize and let's see what happens but if nothing happens then cut it down uh, I, i'm reminded here of the patience of the lord but the fact that We are not granted forever to do what God wants us to do. Now, for the call to Christ, what did we say last week about the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is uh, cussing. No. The unpardonable sin is evil thoughts. No. The unpardonable sin is saying no for the last time to the calling of the Holy Spirit to us to give our lives to Christ. And when you've done that for the last time, that's the unpardonable sin. And the person who keeps saying no does not know, but that at that moment, that could be your last opportunity. So Jesus is reminding us to follow him now, to be obedient to him now. The Lord is patient, but there is a day coming when time will run out. Okay. Make sense. All right, let's let's do a little bitty bit because we're almost out of time. Let's do a little bitty bit on chapter thirteen, beginning with verse ten, as we find another Sabbath miracle. We've already had some earlier in Luke. Now here's another Sabbath miracle. Uh, and you remember, you remember from previous incidents. The Pharisees loved it when Jesus would do a miracle on the Sabbath, didn't they? Not. They did not. And we're about to have another one. So look at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant. Now, why would the word indignant appear at a moment like this? Shouldn't everybody be rejoicing and celebrating with the woman? Should. But indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. That is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in all my life. But that's what he said to the people. So the Lord answers him. Jesus answers him. And not gently. You hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. He called them out before, before the people. 
but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. So now just picture this as an aside, an aside to the main point. But the, the, the Pharisee, the religious leaders are getting madder and madder and madder at Jesus. And so this heightens their anger because he calls them out in front of the people and humiliates them. And the people rejoice at what Jesus is doing. Now, quickly, Sabbath teaching. This woman who is bent over from old age or arthritis, but from the bondage of Satan. 18 years. She's in the synagogue. Why is she there? My guess is that she's hoping for God to do something. She wants to be in the right place for God to do something. And he did. Satan was cast off and the leaders were indignant and Jesus calls them hypocrites with an illustration. They were humiliated, but the common people loved it. So, um, let me, let me go on to verse, um, yep, I can do it. Okay. You're still with me. If you got to go, go, but here, let me go 18 through 21. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, one of the littlest of all seeds, little tiny bitty mustard seed, which a man took and planted it in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. So it becomes a mighty tree. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed it into 30, I mean, 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Okay, so here's the picture very quickly. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small and it grows. And many come to the kingdom. Yeast grows through the flower, expands, penetrates, and permeates. And 60 pounds of flour, that's a lot of bread. That's a lot of bread. So the picture, the expansion of the kingdom of God, which we see continuing to this very day. And every time somebody comes to Christ, it is a further expansion of the kingdom of God. Now, next week, we'll start with verse 22, and uh, we'll, we'll expand some more on what Jesus says about the kingdom of God. So we better stop right there. I think my voice has had about all it can take. Your ears may have had about all they can take. So we'll stop right there. But I love teaching you. It's fun. It's It's exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to moving on through the rest of the Gospel of Luke and completing that by the end of October. Let me pray, and then we will. Um, you can you can stay on if you'd like to for a little while and visit whatever you'd like to do. Father, thank you for your precious word, the truth about the kingdom of God, and that we are some of those birds who have come to perch in the limbs of the kingdom of God. We are part of that mighty loaf of bread that is growing and expanding called the kingdom of God. We are so thankful. You are so good to us, so gracious to include us in your great plan for this world. Father, may we be faithful servants today and the days beyond. Thank you for all who've come. Bless each one. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Good to see you. So. Look forward to seeing you next Wednesday.